the story begins in a book of the Old Testament or Jesus Bible called, guess what? Bad guess, Exodus, all right? That's all right, yeah, go for the obvious, called Exodus. But the story doesn't end there. The story of the Exodus actually spans from the book of Exodus all the way up through the beginnings of a book later on called Joshua. Now, strange word, what does it mean? It's actually a Greek word, and it's actually a compound word, which means, go back to like grammar horror days, two words shoved together. Two Greek words, ex and hados. Let's talk about the word ex. The word ex means this, simply like out of, from, all right? And you're familiar with this word in English. In fact, we have it printed around our church. There and there and there and there. Do you see it? What does that word mean? Out of? No, no, read it. Out of what? It. That's why it's called an X. it right? Because you're coming out of it, whatever it might be, a restaurant or a church or a shopping mall or whatever it is, you're coming out of it. So we see X. Now the second word is hados. Give me a hados this morning. So if you want to say it correctly, you should go X hados, but that's weird, isn't it? So we just say Exodus. Hados means this, path, road, way, and often by extension gets to be used for things like journey or travel. So if you take X and you take Hados and you put it together, what you get behind this name is the sense of out on the way, out on the path, out on the journey, traveling out, journeying out. Does that make sense? Because what this story is about is the journeys of God's people. See, what the Exodus story is about is God seeing his people stuck in Egypt. They are enslaved, they are oppressed, they are tortured, and they are crying out. Have you ever been there? And God sees their suffering, and he says, I'm going to do something about it. And the story is about God coming down to rescue and deliver his people from Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He does it through these miracles, these great signs and wonders that the Old Testament will say. And he brings them out and he brings them through the sea and he brings them out into the desert and they travel through this, this, this crag and barren, just God-forsaken desert and into a promised land. This is the story that begins in the biblical book called Exodus and, and travels through Joshua, the journeying out of God's people. And this story, guys, don't underestimate it when I say it. This is the foundational story of the Old Testament. I mean, think about it this way. What what the death and resurrection of Jesus is to us, the exodus was to Old Testament believers which means that that's what it was to Jesus as well. And we'll talk a little bit later today about how the Exodus informed and shaped Jesus' story and what it means for us as followers or seekers of him. Now, sometimes I think it's just helpful to visualize things, to just see what the Exodus looks like because it'll help make sense of some things that we're going to discuss today. Let me show you a map, all right? What you're looking at here is basically the Middle East, We have the Mediterranean Sea over here, and that's present-day Turkey, 
right? Now, if you're tracing this, what you have is the land of Canaan, the promised land. You could see the Dead Sea, and there's the Jordan River, like where John the Baptist would do his baptizing. Okay? Over here, you have the Nile River. And there is an ancient saying, or there's a saying that describes ancient Egypt, and it's worth knowing. Egypt is the Nile. I think of Egypt today, and I think of a desert wasteland. How about you? Right? You see the pictures, and it just seems hot and dry and blowing. But this isn't really the best picture to have of ancient Egypt, because those political lines as they exist today weren't really the heart of Egypt back then. The heart of Egypt is this river, the Nile. And just judging by the map, how does that place look? Look like a good place to live? Yeah, do you want to live here or there? Right? Do you want to live there or there? Right? And so what the Exodus is a story of God taking his people out of this fertile place here. A fertile place and a good place, but a place nonetheless that's laced and ripe depression and slavery and hurt and bringing them out through this barren wasteland here up into a fertile promised land. It is the story of God bringing his people out out of slavery and delivering them. It is this story that the rest of the Bible will build on. And what you'll see if you read the rest of the Bible beyond the story of the Exodus is biblical writers and prophets and poets constantly looking back at the Exodus to inform their understanding about God and who he is and the kind of work he is about. Because here's the problem. It's great to be brought out of slavery, right? I mean, I've never experienced it personally, at least in a political way. But I've experienced it in other ways, have you? It is a wonderful thing to be brought out of slavery, to to just breathe freedom, to taste the hope and the promise and go, oh, this is what it's like. But what happens when you get enslaved again? What do you do when God rescues you once only to find yourself in a similar situation again. You ever find yourself in a place like that? If you have, you're not alone. And arguably, it's the story of the rest of the Old Testament. Because the foundational story of the Old Testament begins with this thing called the Exodus. But what the Israelites find time and time again, is that even though they've become free from here, they've become slaves again here from all different forces that happen to be around. And the poets and the prophets will begin to tap into this story of the Exodus and promise that God has done it once. So do you know what that means? God will do it again. If God is the God who has delivered us once, God will do it again. Hear me today, people. If God has delivered people once, do you know what he says to you? 
I will do it again. And what the poets and the prophets of the Old Testament begin to yearn for is a second exodus. A second exodus from all the things that enslave. And that's what I want to talk to you a little bit more about today. Now, the difficulty with this is that as you start reading the later poets and prophets of the Bible, who start to begin talking about this idea of a new exodus or a second exodus, it's like all poetry, right? And, and how do we feel about poetry in this room? Yeah, the, the, the lack of res- Okay, and that's why he sits alone. <laughs> the very nature of poetry... It's going to tax your imagination, right? It, it, you, you can't just kind of read it. You've got to kind of put yourself in its shoes. You've got to feel what they're feeling. You've got to visualize it. You've got to picture it. Now, what I want you to do is keep the exodus in mind. And what I want to do is start reading to you excerpts of what these later prophets will talk about as the people of Israel find themselves enslaved again. And see if you can pick up on the images. See if you can pick up on the emotions. See if you can pick up on what these prophets are saying. I read this just a moment ago. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her. And this is what it says to proclaim. A voice of one calling. Where? In the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Now, is this written to people like in Phoenix? What is the author drawing on? The time when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, trapped and alone, and going, where do we go? What do we do? Afraid of every turn, struggling in their faith to trust that God knew the way. And what does the prophet say? Ah, voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. You were in the desert once, you're in the desert again. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. The valleys raised up. The mountains and hills made low. Now, personally, I find Indiana the most boring land to travel in. How about you? Unless you have to walk it. And then give me that over Colorado any day. The valleys brought up, the mountains brought low, the rough ground has become level, the rugged places, it's paved. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed because God brought you through the wilderness once. God will do it again. It goes on. He says things like this. This is what the Lord says. He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together that lay there never to rise again. What's he talking about here? Think back to the Exodus. How does the Exodus end? God brings his people of Israel out with a tenth plague and Pharaoh finally says, right? Let my people go. If you don't know the story, start at the beginning of the book of Exodus and start reading, all right? He finally says, you can go. And so they go. Has someone ever told you something only to have a change of heart? 
Welcome to ancient Israel. And so they go. It says 600,000 men plus their families, plus their animals, plus their possessions. Something tells me that doesn't move on a dime. And they find themselves making their way out and they start going and they find themselves coming up to a coast, to a sea. And Egypt has a change of heart. And the superpower of the day, armed to the hilt, comes barreling down upon them. And if you don't know the story, what it says is that God shows up. He comes down with like this, this, like this, this sheet of fire, this, this, this pillar of fire and a cloud. And he puts a barrier between Egypt and Israel who is saying, what are we going to do? We are dead. And it says that God starts sending an east wind across the sea. Something weird happens. It kind of starts to do that. It starts to part, and, and, and suddenly the ground starts to become dry, and Israel has found a way through. They begin the journey. They begin crossing through the sea with water on their left and water on their right. And God lifts the cloud. God lifts the fire. And Egypt goes, there they are, and they go after them. And the story of their deliverance from Egypt climaxes that day with Israel making it through the sea. Egypt in hot pursuit in the middle and God lets the water loose. And their oppressors, their slave masters, the superpower of the day are washed away for forevermore. What is this imagery drawing on? There was once you felt trapped, hemmed in between Egypt and the sea. And Isaiah says, I know you do today as well. God has delivered you once. God will do it again. And then he says something outlandish. Catch it? Forget about it. Forget about it. Why? Why? Because God's like, I'm done with you? No, forget about it. Because the way I'm going to deliver you now will not compare. The former thing is a shadow. You thought the Exodus was something? Oh, baby, just wait till you see second Exodus. Because I am the God who delivered you once and I will deliver you again. Listen just to some of the imagery that the prophets will use. He says this, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice and shout for joy. The glory of the north woods will be given to it. The splendor of the mountains of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord. So strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come and he will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. The eyes of the blind will be opened. The deaf of the ears unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. For water will gush forth in your wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay. Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway 
will be there. God has delivered you once. The prophets are obsessed with the idea that God will deliver you again. And you know why? Because slavery is inevitable. It doesn't feel like that's something we should say in 21st century suburban America. But slavery is inevitable. Now, Israel, they found themselves enslaved to all kinds of things. They came out of Egypt, but they found themselves in Canaan, the promised land, and they found themselves oppressed and enslaved to the Canaanites. You can read about it in Judges. And later they found themselves enslaved to another superpower, the Assyrians. You can read about it in Kings. And later they found themselves enslaved to another superpower called Babylon. You can read about it in the prophets. And later than that, they found themselves enslaved to the Persians. And later on, they found themselves enslaved to the Seleucids. And later in Jesus' day, they found themselves enslaved to Rome. Because just because we've been freed once doesn't mean slavery goes away. It has a funny way, doesn't it? of always rearing its head. But you know, we find ourselves enslaved too. For some, it is political. For some around this world right now, living in hiding, oppressed, underground, because they know and they yearn for something like the exodus. There's people politically who find themselves enslaved here too. People in the sex trade and abusive homes or abusive relationships or sometimes it's not quite so delineated. Sometimes it's just the sense that I'm enslaved to a life that I don't like and I don't know what to do about it. In a rut. In a pattern. Or maybe it's even deeper. Enslaved to patterns, behaviors. You ever find yourself living in such a way going, why do I keep doing that? And no matter how many good intentions and plans and and methods that you try, it just won't let Go. There's some of you here who have tasted it in the most extreme of forms of of various addictions, but let's face it, we are all addicts of something in this world. There is something for each of us that keeps its grip, and we feel like we're under the hand of a slave master. The Bible will talk about being enslaved to sin. Like, like it goes beyond something that we just do or don't do, like something that owns us, that controls us. And have you ever felt that way? If just free me, we're enslaved to bodies that decay, that don't do what they're supposed to do. Let's face it, for each of us, there is a slave master named death. It's going to own us someday we find ourselves enslaved in this world. 
And all of us need a second exodus. Which brings me to Jesus and what the exodus meant for him and how he reinterpreted and redefined it and what it means for us today. Now, there's this, this, this little story, this really cool story you'll find in the New Testament in the Gospels that I think just kind of serves as a good platform for this today. And I want to invite you to open there. It's, uh, it's in Luke chapter 9. If you, uh, if you haven't brought a Bible with you today, just you'll find them under the chairs. And if you don't know where Luke is, just glance in the table of contents quickly. But open with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 9. Now, what this is, is it's a story of Jesus and a couple of his disciples. Three of them, to be exact. It's, a, it's three disciples, Peter, it's James, and it's John. They're like his best friends. They're the ones that are closest to him, the ones that he confides in above all others. And, and he takes Peter, James, and John, just alone, just the four of them, up on this mountainside. Now, at verse 28, the story picks up. And it's a story of Jesus going up on the mountainside and something really weird happens. Moses, who is the guy who brought Israel out in the first exodus, right? And Elijah, who's this other prophet who's been off the scene for like 800 years, they show up. Now, I don't know about you, but if I go hanging out in the mountains and people that have been dead for a thousand years show up, something weird's happening, right? Right? They show up. They're there. They're talking with him. How? I don't know, so don't ask. But they're talking with him. And they're up there, and the disciples begin to see something. They start to see Jesus for who he really is. Or, or better put, they start to see a side of Jesus that they really haven't seen before. And so it says in 28 that about eight days after Jesus had said these other teachings, he took Peter, James, and John up with him to pray. And and as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. You know what they start to see? They start to see his divinity, his glory. They start to see that side of him that's masked and veiled and they go, This is who he is. And Moses and Elijah appear in in glorious splendor as well, and they have a chat. And they spoke specifically about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, do you see that there, where it says they begin to to speak about his departure? I'm curious today. Does anyone have another word there Everyone have departure? Decease? Oh, that's weird. All right. All right. Thanks for putting it out there. Let me read it to you with one one word taken literally out of Greek. And I'll put the passage right here so you can see it. Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his, here's the Greek, Exodus. Moses and Elijah show up and they speak with Jesus about his Exodus. 
Wait, Jesus wasn't at the Exodus. What do you mean? They, they spoke with him about his Exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now it's become clear that Jesus is heading for Jerusalem through the Gospel of Luke. And for those of you who know the story, what is Jesus going to Jerusalem to do? Right? You remember this? How does the Gospel climax? Well, as he teaches his disciples, he's going there to suffer. He's going there to die. And he's going there to rise again. He is going, and they start speaking about his exodus, which will happen in Jerusalem through his suffering and death and resurrection. The gospel writer says this is a new exodus, a second exodus. What has Jesus come to do? He's come to bring an exodus because God has done it once, And God will do it again. The God of the Bible is a God who is in the business of delivering people from slavery. See, this is why Jesus calls himself, well, here, you remember this passage? What does Jesus say? I am the way. What does Exodus mean? Out on the way. Now, there's several nuances that you could pull out of this passage, but don't let this one be missed. At one fundamental level, what Jesus is saying is, I am the exodus, I am the path, I am the road, I am the way. The way to what? The way to God. The way to the Father. The way from what? Well, from slavery. Slavery to what? Sin. Death. Satan. Weakness. Oppression. Destruction. The void. The abyss. The things that seek to oppress. I am the way. I am the exodus, and no one comes on this way to God except by me. Now that should cause us to pause for a moment. That should cause us to pause, I think, and take warning. Because if we think that we are going to accomplish our own exodus and get out by our own strength, and devices were, guys, we're kidding ourselves. I mean, did Israel get out of Egypt by their own strength? Could Israel have gotten out of Egypt by, I mean, can you imagine? That would have been a great Exodus movie. If Israel tried to get out of Egypt by their own strength, the movie would be like three minutes long. They would try, boom, bloodshed. It would get an NC-17 rating for gore, and that would be the movie. You'd go home, the credits would roll. I mean, it would have been a slaughterhouse because you can't get away from a power like that by your own strength. It takes God coming in. It takes God delivering. It was God 
who brought Egypt out on the way. And Jesus goes, shows up and he says, it's the same thing. Because you're in slavery. And there's not a one of us here who doesn't need deliverance as well. But I got good news and this should give us hope. I am the way. I am your exodus. Whatever slavery you find yourself in, I am your exodus. Freedom. Deliverance. Salvation. God. Do you start to see how the exodus and that first story undergirds everything. Because, like it or not, you're going to find yourself enslaved again and again and again. Sin, decay, death, the forces of evil at work in this world, Talk about all of them any way that you will. Those are the real superpowers of the day. And they're at work and they're strong. And they got their eye on you. They got a grip. But the good news is God is still delivering. Jesus is the God of the exodus the second exodus who is here. And my encouragement, my prayer for each of you, walk on that path today. Let's rise and pray. Um... I'm going to lead us in a, just a small time of prayer, but I, I do want to encourage you that if you do find yourself enslaved here to one force or another this morning, what God says is real. And so I want to encourage you to use this time right now to say, Lord, free me. Free me or slave me. <laughs> Free me or save me or deliver me. Be specific to him this morning about what that is. Let's pray. Yahweh God, you you rescued once. You have rescued again. Lord Jesus, you have come to bring us into a, a, a second exodus, a new exodus, an exodus without end, a a, a freedom God that can be never overthrown or broken or usurped. You have laid out your way. May we trust you here today. It's tough, God. I think of ancient Israel so often doubting you in the desert, wondering if they should follow your way and it led to their ruin. May we not be guilty of that today. May we trust you, God, even if we find ourselves in the wilderness, even if we find ourselves in Egypt. 
You are a God who is mighty to save. A God who has delivered. Deliver and save us now, we pray. Save us from our sins that destroy us and that own us. Save us from this decay and death that comes for us all. Save us, God, from the forces and powers and situations alive in our lives and at work in this world that seek to control and dominate. Break the bar across the shoulder and the rod of the oppressor. Lord Jesus, you are the way. We follow you today. So hear our prayer, God. May we trust you and may we learn and devote ourselves to that way. In your name we pray. Amen. First Exodus. God brings Israel out of Egypt. He brings them through the sea. He brings them into the desert. First major stop, number one. It's a mountain in the desert called Horeb or Sinai. And it's at that mountain that God begins to talk with his people, to meet his people, and to share with them a fuller understanding of what his way looks like. He begins to introduce to them what it means to live and be the people of God. And it gets encapsulated or headed with these words called the Ten Commandments. Have you ever read these or learned these? If you have, ten bucks says you've done it out of a prayer book or a catechism. But I bet very few of you have ever done it out of the Bible. We're going to read those here today, and I want to encourage you to maybe memorize them anew or for the first time. Begin to appropriate God's way as your way. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, 